Greetings to each one tonight. In our risen Lord's name. I feel somewhat trembling tonight in what I feel like God is directing me to share. And some part part of that is because of I feel like God has kind of redirected my thinking, what I was wanting to share on or what I felt led earlier. And yet somehow I have the confidence that you as a congregation will hear me out and some concerns that I will be sharing. Starting here knowing what what scripture verse to read, what is... Uh, good theme for what I felt like God was was directing us to. My heart was on the home. Uh, Maybe just for a scripture reading, let's turn to Psalm 127, 128. Just quickly read those. Be addressing, excuse me, addressing mostly on the women's side tonight. You might feel a little picked on by the time the evening is over, but yet I, like I said, I have the confidence that y'all will give it some thought what, what is shared. Okay, reading Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath this quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. 128. Blessed is every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children, excuse me, Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children in peace upon Israel. Very familiar scriptures, and a lot of times you hear that in, in the start of a message on the home. And I, it's, you just can't get around it. It just makes it very simple. Except the Lord build the city. Except the Lord keep the city. Build the house and keep the city. It said right here. And it's just simply again a reminder that we need Christ centered homes. We need the Spirit of God in building our homes, our courtships. Latest statistics, I think the last I seen any statistics I think it was 6 out of 10 
marriages or end up in divorce. I think I shared the other night, there's really very little difference between professing Christians and unbelievers in those statistics. I believe tonight you can have the noblest intentions, uh, lofty ideals, uh, grandest dreams, starting out in courtship and homes. But it's just very simple if we override God's blueprints, blueprint for the home, we're setting ourselves up for some heartaches. Psalm 128, there he promises happiness for obedience. There is a picture of, to me I like the idea there of the man as the the stone structure, the strength of the home there. The wife is a fruitful vine by the sides of the, the house. To me a picture of beauty, grace, the tenderness there of the home. Not a now down south they have a vine they call a kudzu, and I don't think that's the kind of vine it's talking about there. The kind that smothers something, and and a kudzu vine can actually kill trees. It just climbs all over it and can smother it out. You just see beside the road just trees just completely covered. I don't think it's that's what's talking about. Children as olive plants around the table. Something very valuable, special, blessed. And children's children, and peace upon Israel. I think there again, Israel, the Old Testament type of the church. What a blessing. And yet, as we look at the home, someone has made the comment, the statement, he said, the, the church can rarely ever resurrect what the home has put to death. Just simply saying that the home is the foundation, the basis of the church. The church can rarely resurrect what the home has put to death. And yet it's such a sad commentary because we're becoming more and more aware of the deficiencies in our homes, marriages, the amount of couples that are experiencing difficulty to the point of needing counseling, and again, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking of complete ignorance here. I, I'm, this was not uh, someone filled me in. Again, I, I don't know what y'all are facing. I'm talking in general terms of our Anabaptist circles. Just seeing more and more we're needing counseling centers where, and I guess that's a subject in itself. I still believe that God designed the church to meet the needs of the congregation. The young couple that I mentioned the other evening that has joined our church from the community, they made this statement and they were sharing their personal testimony. They were at the verge of divorce, they themselves at one point. They made the statement that they feel like couples give up too quick rather than working through those problems. Divorce is such an option, you don't even think nothing about it. It's just, that's just what you do if you don't can't get along somehow I'm afraid we, we're a lot of our youth are have a wrong concept of marriage they're looking to marriage to fill a void in their, that vacuum in their life 
the vacuum there that someone has said that we have a God-sized hole and only God can fill it. We can put anything else in there we want. It just it will not fill that, that void in our lives. So we look to marriage. Using marriage as an escape from maybe our home setting, rebellious. Lack of godly role models within our homes. Children grow up and see deficiencies in their homes, and so that deficiency is perpetuated. That's just the way the only way they know to operate is the way mom and dad did. Unrealistic view of marriage, influenced by romance novels, concept of worldly romance, that it's... Read those romance novels that... They ride off in the sunset and live happily ever after. Just the tall, dark, and handsome, and the beautiful blonde, and that type of thing. And yet only to become disillusioned that marriage is not what they thought it was going to be. remember one man making the comment that he loved his wife so much when he first got married, he said he could have ate her. He said a year later he wished he would have. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's marriage for a lot of people, disillusioned. And yet God somehow, as I was studying and I thought I had a trail that I was going to go and, and somehow I seemed like I kind of veered off into a, a little bit different tonight. I was planning on looking at the basic two requirements it talks about in a marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife. And, and you have it there in uh, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. And Peter talks about it there in First Peter 3 there. It talks about wives submit, husbands love. And yet as I was studying, somehow I kept getting pulled in a different direction. And I'd like to just quickly turn to... Um, 1 Timothy 2, and there again it's addressing the pattern of sisters. 2 Peter, I mean, excuse me, 1, okay, get it straight here. 1 Timothy 2, and we'll go to Peter then later. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 8. I will therefore that men... Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without doubting. Okay, then it goes on to say, In like manner also, that women adorn themselves with modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, in charity, and holiness with sobriety. Okay. First Peter 3. Again, very similar, and this was Peter now. It was Paul's stating that now. The first six verses. 
Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair, of wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye, ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. And as I was studying and writing down some notes in, in what the wife, the lady's part in the home, the wife, responsibility of submitting. And yet the more I kept looking at it, now why did Paul and Peter both, in the context of a woman being in subjection, a woman submitting to her husband, why do they address, uh, why do they, yeah, address the dress, okay, why do they address her apparel? What has that got to do with it? Now, both of them say something very similar. And so I guess that's what kind of started pulling me, and I felt God just directing me in a little bit different way than I had, had intended earlier. But I'd like to just share just a little bit of that which I had felt burdened to talk about tonight and that is is looking at mostly on the sister side here tonight now that which you as sisters deal with constantly because of part of the fallen nature now I'd like to turn back to Genesis and I'd like to just look at a word in Genesis chapter 2 after the fall there, God talking with Adam and Eve there, and, and part of it was the pronouncement of the, the curse there. Excuse me, Genesis 3, verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and thy conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now that word desire is what I'd like to just look at here a little bit. And what was, what was God saying to Eve there? Part of it was, is dealing with the curse. In Strong's, as I looked up that word desire, it says to stretch out after, longing. And it comes from another word. It means to run after or over, to overflow. Now, sometimes, I don't know how about y'all, brother, and if y'all do a word study, I end up more confused than what I do to start with. So now, what does that mean? What is it saying to stretch out after, longing? And it stems from another word, to run after or over. So then I was looking in the Strong's there, and, and then there I seen the word desire again, and so it's over there in, in the next chapter, chapter 4, in a complete different context here now. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, 
you have the same word, a different setting, but the exact same meaning. And this is talking about where Cain, where he brought an offering to God, and it was not accepted. Abel's was accepted, but Cain's was not. And so he was, Cain was angry. And then he goes on to tell him, he said, If thou doest well, thou shalt not, shall not thou be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, y'all might come out at a different place than I did. And I, I was reading Matthew Henry, and he thought the, the, um, his desire was talking about Abel. But I guess I personally believe it's talking about sin. Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire. Sin desires to rule over you. That's where I came out at. But thou shalt rule over him. Now, if I have it correctly, and I, I stand to be corrected, and I wouldn't argue the point. And yet, studying the nature of women, why is dress, and in society today, undress, such an issue? Why is it that it seems like there's such a struggle within the women's side of dealing with Some of those things. And I think just simply from what we gleaned here, part of our fallen nature that we're dealing with is a woman using her beauty, her body, to control man. Man in his corrupted state has women historically, if you look at history, probably for the most of, of history as so we know it, women have been in a very, uh, not sure what the word is, abused, uh, put in a position of, a very demeaning position because of the fallen nature of man. Treated very poorly. Women are physically weaker, okay? So, I mean, that's obvious there. They can't control a man physically. There might be a few women around that could, could whoop up on a man. But physically, we're looking at a, a weaker vessel, which the Bible talks about here. And so I believe that's why part of why Paul and Peter both address the thing in, in the area of submission. That a woman uses her beauty to control men. Now, if you don't believe that, read the account in Samson. Now, I, Samson probably was the strongest man physically that we know of, and yet you see how a, a, a little woman, probably a very beautiful woman, brought him, brought him down, and it wasn't physically now, if you're doubting what I'm saying, then let's turn to Proverbs 7 and read a little bit here. Proverbs 7, verse 
Okay, Proverbs chapter 7, starting in at verse 6. And I'd like to just read a little bit. For at the window of my house I looked, looked through my casement, and beheld among the simple ones I discerned among the youth a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. He went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and the dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot, and subtle of heart. Now I just quit reading down and drop down to verse uh, 21, to the end. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield, and with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway, as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till a dart strike through her liver, as a bird hasteth through the snare. He knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, ye, ye, excuse me, hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to my words. Let not thine heart decline to her ways, go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Somebody's looking on in witnessing this thing. It identifies her as a harlot or a, a, very, a woman of very low morals. And he identifies her by her dress. He says her attire or her dress or her lack of dress. And I'm not sure what all that was back in that day, but I know what we face in society today. That she rendered this young man powerless by her beauty, by using her body. Now I want to be very discreet here tonight, but I want to be still very plain so we understand what we're trying to say. It's very troubling to me some of the things that we have to deal with in our plain circles. Now, yeah, tonight you can tune out and you say that's, that's way out there. We can go to town and, and you can just see, see it all. But we're not talking there, we're talking here. Why are young sisters, especially, and, and sometimes what's even worse is some of the older sisters, we're constantly struggling with appropriate dress for our young ladies. What is it that that tendency is there to want to wear material that's eye-catching? What is it that material that clings to the body, material that's maybe sheer, revealing? Tonight, I guess my, the burden of my heart is is that our our sisters understand a part of that fallen nature that each has to deal with, because you possess a lot of power there over over men, and that's why pornography is so rampant in society today. It's a billion billions of dollar industry. 
why you see advertisements, it's always with a beautiful woman on it because they know that's how you can get somebody's attention when they normally wouldn't look at the product, wouldn't look at the picture. But they have to use that. And so Peter is talking about, he mentions three things, the hair arrangement, ornamentation, and the apparel. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I've been noticing a lot here tonight, but I, I guess I'm just, again, I'm looking at the general conservative circles in the wide range of circles, so I'm not focusing on one particular group. But why is it that the tendency of the covering to continue to shrink? We're just, it's something that we're, we're constantly dealing with. That if left go, the covering would just shrink and, and finally they put it away to, when it gets to the place that it's kind of a joke. What is it that you see women with little tufts of hair pulled out? Stringy hair down the side by the sides here. There's something extremely troubling about those those styles. Yeah, we might not see our sisters wearing hard jewelry, but Aiden Gingrich uh, from Farmington, New Mexico, calls it soft jewelry. Is when we have things on our dresses, little uh, added features. What is it that we we we're so attracted to, uh, wanting those little features that kind of catch your eye? And as I said, what is it about the apparel that we were constantly dealing with, like I said, sheer material? Material that, that's eye-catching. It's either loud or it's shiny. Things that, that attract you to your body. Form-fitting. We have to deal with necklines. And I mean, uh, we have a local bank there and we have the most painted up ladies in that bank and, and and when you go up to the teller you have to almost hand the check and keep your eye on the ceiling because the, the necklines are just way low and yet we see it in our in our sisters that they're wanting to open up their necklines and what what is it there now at home we've been Happened to, to deal with long dresses, and I've, I've noticed some here. And yet the cry with the long dresses is, it's, it's modest, it's more modest. Now, 20 years ago when we started the church at Litchfield, we were dealing with short dresses. That we had to come up with some guidelines, let's keep them, let's keep them at a proper length. And who would have ever dreamt that now we have to have a guideline that we got, need to Keep them up off the floor. I mean, we have some that, uh, not in our particular church, but I've seen some sisters in other churches where it'd be kind of handy because you sweep the floor when you go. It's Their dresses are actually dragging on the ground, on the floor. 
You can't even see their shoes. They could wear their chore boots to church and you'd never know it. I mean, they're, you can't see the shoe at all because they're just completely down to the, to the ground. And yet they say it's modest. And yet observing that, of those dresses now, what they're saying is modesty. It's interesting that the spirit of this age, that which, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is that determines the latest styles and movements other than just simply it's, it's, it's not of God it's the spirit of this world and yet what you claim is modesty in one area you violate the principles of modesty in how many other areas noticing looking at some of those dresses that when you have a lack of gathers around the waist. Pleats, gathers, or whatever you want to call it. You have a skirt that's not full and flowing, but it's, it's kind of a tighter skirt. When you have a dress that's lacking material as on the cape, and it all makes for one look that it, it creates a form-fitting wear. And yet we're saying modesty because, yeah, you don't see the legs. And yet we're violating how many other principles that actually with a long dress it can become very a very central-looking dress. Young sisters tonight, if there's any of your attire, whether it's loud, whether it's sheer, whether it's form-fitting, whether it's soft jewelry, that causes a man to look more at your body than at your face, it's not of God. If what you wear causes a man to look more at your body than at your face, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. And you all might be ready to tar and feather me by the time this message is over, but I hope that you'll, you'll hear me out in my concern and it's for, for your good. The Apostle Paul is dressing a moral, moral purity here in this particular place here. First, okay, First Thessalonians four, beginning of verse three to um, verse eight. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God. Who, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like to focus on the word defraud. 
And it just simply means to covet or to get an advantage. And I think it was a Baptist minister that I heard defined defraud. It means to just simply arouse a desire in another that cannot be righteously satisfied. And so, sisters, that is what you're doing when you're wearing a dress that causes a man to look more at your body than at your face. You're arousing a desire that cannot be righteously satisfied. And God takes notice. As he said, he is the avenger. When we go and defraud, he said, well, if you despise that, he said, you're not despising man, but you're despising God. Now, I know young sisters, it's the temptation and it's, a, it's the desire of every young lady. I think it's a normal desire. I think it's a holy desire that you desire companionship. But I think there's that temptation with every young lady that to attract a young man by your physical beauty. But I guess the warning that I'm pleading with you tonight, that if you try to attract a young man by your physical beauty and by, by clothing that, that appeals to him, to his eye, to, to attract him, just remember that that which you use to attract him will also he will also be attracted to other women. I don't know if I'm making myself clear here. When you dress in such a way to attract a young man, using your body in any type of a central form, one form or another of all those things that were mentioned, hairstyles, whatever, that that very thing that attracts them to you will also be attracted to other women because you're attracting the wrong the wrong type of young man. And my plea tonight, fathers, that you understand the nature of a of a young man. And there's a lot of things and I remember after we got married, my wife was very ignorant of what a young man faces until I explained some things to her what some of those central things that they were she was totally totally ignorant of some of those things and I explained to her what what a struggle that that type of dress creates in the heart of a young man And I guess I'm very conscious of the way my young daughters dress. That there's not anything about their dress. And they struggle with the same things, I can grant you. They, they, they want to be attractive. They want to be liked. And yet it, it, it angers me if, if the thought of them attracting a young man that's just out looking at her body... And so it's something that we're very conscious of and we're working very hard that to try to help them to see that they're attracting the wrong type of individual if that's what they're kind of going after. 
Well, I believe tonight a young lady that truly loves the Lord and is serious about her relationship with the Lord and, and desires companionship, that you should radiate a beauty that comes from within. That beauty is inwardly. And that's what Peter calls an ornament, that meek and quiet spirit. I think it was also Aidan Gingrich that made the statements that she that has no inward beauty must display it outwardly. She that she who has no inward beauty must display it outwardly. And a young man that's attracted by that physical beauty is in for a surprise after they're married if there's no inward beauty. They say, now this is talking about in society in general, that young men, their first marriage are generally attracted. They marry marry for beauty the first time. The second time they're a little wiser. So often you see them marrying someone that's not quite so physically beautiful because they recognize that Beauty is only skin deep, and they marry more for compatibility of someone that they can get along with. And I'd like to just share just a few comments in courtship here, and I was determined I'm not going to keep you all this long tonight. And that is our, our guidelines, and I don't know where you all stand, and I would suspect that you all would be at the same place. But our guidelines for courtship is we insist on a hands-off courtship. Hands-off, and that's just exactly what it means, that there's no holding hands or anything beyond that. Because first of all, we believe that courtship is to seek a life's companions. We don't endorse casual dating. It's a time of evaluating each other in their spiritual uh, condition? Are they genuine? Are they serious about the Lord? That's what courtship's all about, a time of evaluating. Their view of church, uh, I'm not talking about necessarily geographical, but I'm talking about directional, what they want for church life. Are they together on that? And then, of course, depending on the circumstances, then you need to well, also you need to observe time, how they relate to family. Uh, how are they easy to get along with? How do they relate to church? And then, of course, you've got things to work through, different communities, different churches, occupation. And I believe it should be a very serious, serious time. And yet so often you see such frivolity in, in courtship such lightheartedness because I think it should be a time that we spend a lot of time in prayer fasting and hopefully their parents blessing is has been pronounced on the courtship from the onset had the parents blessing has been sought but the reason we insist on a hands-off courtship 
is that we believe that there's nothing that blinds a young couple to the real issues that make a marriage work as much as passion in, in a courtship. There's nothing that blinds a couple to the real issues that make a marriage work as passion. Now this was a Baptist, this came from a Baptist minister, if that helps make it a little bit easier to accept. He said, passion, and I'm talking about the relationship between a young man and a young woman. He said, passion is intoxicating. Just as alcohol impairs judgment, so does passion. Impairs our ability to rightly discern the things that are needful for a successful marriage. And he said, that's why so many couples wake up in marriage to a total stranger. Because in their courtship is very loose, and to what level of the intimate relationship they, they had, it so blinds them, because it's so intoxicating, that's what they desire, that they never really evaluated the character that they were actually courting. Until in marriage, then the reality sets in, and all of a sudden, this tall, dark, handsome dream boat becomes a, a brute. Now, and I've had several, two lawyers that told me that they quit handling divorce cases because he said it's humanity at its worst. And yet you just can only imagine that in their courtship it was just so much fireworks and so romantic and, and just wonderful and then they're clawing each other's eyes out after marriage. And I think we've seen it often enough. Where a, and I think that's why it's so important that a parent is involved in a courtship from the very start before a young man ever asked. Because a parent is a bystander. They're not swept off their feet by this charming young lady or this handsome young man, they're not swept off their feet like a young person is. They're more able to clearly see and evaluate character. And so that's why we insist in our, in our circles that a young man seeks the counsel of his own parents, seeks the blessing of the young lady's parents before courtship has ever started just simply because I believe it's so important that we as parents are involved in that, that courtship from the onset. And it's been a blessing to observe that and the, the youth are willing to do that and go through those procedures because it's for their good. We want them to have a happy home life. We want them to have solid marriages. <clears throat> and I believe tonight that God has put a hedge around marriage for the intimate relationship there. And though that's a very important part of marriage, it's not the essence of marriage. And one more thing in closing here, and I'd like to just, just share this with any 
young people that are considering courtship and you know, young marrieds even. One thing that's been troubling, and I've seen a trend in our, even in our own circles there, and I just make a, a plea for consideration that as young married couples, to be discreet with your new liberties in your marriage. I guess I've just been noticing a trend of intimate uh, postures in, in the pictures. Um, and also the intimacy they, they express in public. Uh, I'm not saying that you cannot hold hands at all, but I'm talking about the way you hold each other and hug each other, and I'm not sure that I, I don't know that I've even seen that here, so I bear with me if that's not a problem. But I, I guess a couple things that we've noticed, and and uh, bless their hearts, they're they're so in love, and we were glad for them. Uh, but they come to church and they walk down the aisle holding hands until they come down to the third or fourth bench and then they part ways. Uh, and maybe maybe their equilibrium is off or something and they need to hang on to each other to maintain balance. I'm not sure. We want to be sympathetic if they're a little dizzy. Uh, but I guess a couple, two things that, that I guess I plead with your consideration and first of all, especially in intimate poses where a couple is just nose to nose holding each other and, uh, or cheek to cheek. and Again, the idea of defrauding. Those postures, the, the holding of each other now, now that you're married, you have those liberties. And yet I think those liberties are need to be very discreet because again the idea of defrauding is arousing uh, struggles within other youth and the second point is just simply being charitable and considerate of those that are struggling with singlehood that maybe God isn't calling them to marriage and so I, I plead with our youth I, I'm not sure brethren if I'm asking too much or not but again, there's youth that are dealing with God's choice for them in life that maybe marriage is not going to be for them. And then to see couples inappropriately holding each other. And so I, I again, I just shared that as a consideration. Now to me, I am... I'm so touched and blessed if I'm going to see a couple holding, holding hands. To me, it's one, a couple that's been married for 50 years and they're astute. And maybe they, the one of them can't hardly walk and you see them holding hands going out, especially after a wedding or walking down the aisle. To me, now that's a picture of real love. Because you know that couple has gone through 50 years of testing and trials and 
and they're still holding hands. Now that to me is a beautiful picture. So I hope tonight what I've shared that give it some consideration. God grant you the grace to be able to sort through that and I think we're just simply going to close with prayer here tonight. Maybe just stand for prayer.